1800 Days is brought to you by the Bloom Family Charitable Foundation, a proud supporter of the 1800 Days podcast, Erickson Institute, and other vital Chicago area nonprofits. Support for 1800 Days by the Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. Learn more at hsfoundation.org. Bridget Vance runs Larissa Learning Lab, a home-based daycare on Chicago's South Side. I wear many hats. I basically do everything. But the thing that I like most is administration. Of course, I love interacting with the children. That's always a wonderful thing. But I am a director, so I handle the administrative task. I also uh, am a teacher, sometimes in the classroom with children. Sometimes I'm even the cook in the kitchen, (laughs) serving meals. I do advocacy work. Pretty much the overall operations of the business, whatever it takes to run this uh, daycare home, that is what I do. This isn't what Vance dreamed of doing when she was younger, though. She had been working for a law firm when she suddenly found herself setting up a home business. I had been talking about doing something at home because I was pregnant with my uh, second daughter and I had a lot of complications. And so my husband and I had just purchased a two flat and we had a huge basement, which was unfinished. And so my mom said, well, you know, you love children. So why don't you just, you know, have your basement finished into a daycare and, you know, work from home. DCFS called and said that they were ready to come out and license my home. And I said, excuse me? And they said, well, yeah, you applied for a daycare license. And I said, I did? And they said, yeah, you did. So I said, well, okay. I don't even remember applying for a daycare license but because I was a foster parent. So maybe somehow, some way I did. So when they came out, they said, well, you're good to go. We just need you to get radiator covers for your radiators. And so I did, I invested $1,000 in the radiator covers. They were really nice. They came back out and licensed me. Van says she originally wanted to have 10 kids of her own, but by the time she was pregnant with her second, she'd put that dream aside. Instead, she began hosting foster kids. She'd gone to college for accounting, but after becoming a parent, she was drawn to working in childcare. Actually, I did not have any experience in childcare. My education was in accounting, economics, and business. That's what my uh, undergrad degrees were in. But when I had children of my own, I saw that there was a need for parents, for uh, others to get involved in early childhood education. And that's what prompted me because I started getting involved in my children's schooling and being on the LSC and going up for parent meetings and going on field trips. And I saw the need for it. And so uh, it just prompted me to want to get involved. I just love children. I've always loved children. I've always been interested in their development and how they grow and definitely wanted to make sure that children were treated equally, like their voices were heard, and that they always uh, get what they need to grow and to develop into productive, you know, adults. In the 23 years since her learning center opened, Vance has gotten multiple degrees in early childhood education, an MBA, and a master's of early childhood administration. 
Now she's pursuing a doctorate degree in hopes of helping to shape policy in this sector. State, local, and federal policy can have a huge impact on funding for childcare businesses. It was only a few years ago in 2015 that a change from then-Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner nearly wiped her out. Rauner slashed funding for the Child Care Assistance Program and vetoed legislation that would allow more parents to be eligible for assistance. She said it was only her deep personal commitment that kept her in the industry. I think it was just my passion is what I'm supposed to do because from that point, January 18th of 1999, up until now, I've gone through a lot of different adversities where I've had to, if capacity was down and I didn't have many children, especially when the Rauner administration came in, changed the whole CCAP system, and I was 100% state subsidized, I lost all except for one family, and that was two children. So I had to actually go out and work another job, but I still kept my daycare with just those two children. I worked two other jobs. I went into insurance, and I became a substitute teacher for CPS. This is a story we're hearing more and more frequently from childcare workers, especially those who don't own their own businesses. They're working additional jobs in other fields in order to keep pursuing their passion for early childhood education. And government funding can make a huge difference in whether childcare facilities are viable businesses or not. Once Rauner left office and everything opened up again, I had so many children. I had to hire assistants and everything. But, you know, I'm just saying throughout this 23 years, there have been ups and downs. But, you know, I stayed there because that was my passion. It didn't matter if I had one child or 16 children. I felt like if I could reach that one child, that one family, that was wonderful in itself. Vance's passion has proven infectious. One of her daughters recently joined her in the family business. As far as my daughter, she decided that she wanted to learn how business works. She wanted to come and help me in the business. And actually, the daycare is named after her. So Larissa is her middle name. And so when she said, well, mom, you know, can I come and learn about business? I said, oh, of course, that's wonderful. <laughs> because at one time, the both of them told me that they would never do anything with children because they've had to share their home with children ever since they could remember. So anyway, um, February of last year, she decided that she wanted to leave her job at a call center and come and, you know, work at the daycare and learn the business. And so that's what she did. And her background is actually in dance. She was a political science pre-law major and a dance minor. Childcare is actually a family business beyond just Vance's immediate household. Three of my family members, one, my sister, who's still um, in childcare in Bloomington, Illinois, but the other two are not. So, yes, we, <laughs> four of us at one time were... <laughs> In Vance's experience, when she looks around at her fellow providers, she notices that many of the faces she sees are very much like her own. Everyone that I know that's in the business that I know personally is a woman of color. And it's so many 
other women that I come in contact with that are saying, well, how do you get in the business or teach me or show me or I want to do childcare. So I guess I never even thought about even knowing what those ratios were because that's all I see. And that's I mean, when I think about it, the association that I'm in, it's been like a hundred of us for just the Chicagoland area. And we network with providers all over the state of Illinois that are in our association. They are all different, you know, ethnicities. Nationally, more than 90% of childcare workers are women and more than 40% are people of color. How did our childcare system get to this point? Why is it that women and people of color are so overrepresented in this industry? To get an idea, we need to go back to the very beginning of this country. From Erickson Institute and PRX, this is 1800 Days. I'm Natalie Moore. This is episode two, From Slavery to Head Start. Sponsorship for the 1800 Days podcast brought to you by GCM Grosvenor. Giving back to the communities where we live and work is a core value. We are proud to support Erickson Institute and its important work to positively impact children's lives. And by the Mulkin family, proud to support Erickson Institute and the 1800 Days podcast. So I'm Maurice Sykes, and I am the senior associate at the Early Childhood Leadership Institute in Washington, D.C. He's been thinking about the beginning of the child care industry in America. So the Early Childhood Leadership Institute is an organization that works on developing uh, leaders for the early childhood workforce, that works on a strategic planning for programs and organizations, and does policy advocacy on behalf of people who work in the field of early childhood education. Sykes is working on a book called Child Care Justice tracing the roots of U.S. child care in order to figure out how we can transform the system to better provide for young children. I posit that the reason that people who work in the field of early care and education work at a low status, low paid job is because there is a historical connection between child care and slavery. And that when we trace the origins of the enslaved people, the enslaved African people, in the United States starting in 1619 when the newly arrived slaves took over from the indentured servants who at that time performed a lot of the child care. It's within those historical roots that we find the current situation that it is now the servant class, but the low regard that is attributed to child care finds its roots in slavery. In the research for this book, it was just interesting to see that during slavery in the South, um, which slavery was in the North also let the record show, but the slavery in the South, which we know much more about, that it was female slaves often included the domestic household work as well as child care. And as a matter of fact, the first chapter in the book is called Wet Nurses, Nannies, and Mammies. And it is particularly chosen to illustrate the multiple roles that enslaved women function. It 
was not uncommon around nine years of age for young enslaved girls to be put into domestic service. And it was fashionable to have them serve as a nanny, a caretaker for the child. And it became very popular to begin to see this work as what they called Negro work. And so the act of looking after children was associated with the work that enslaved girls did. And that residual in terms of public perception is not something that your rank and file child care, early care and education workers knows about. They don't know that intrinsic history. Sykes traces the influence of slavery on the way poor children are treated in current child care settings and the way workers in the child care industry are compensated. We are challenged to make sure that there is equity in the systems that we promote. And I would argue that in the curriculum or the programs that there is something, and it's one of the chapters in the book that talks about the pedagogy of poverty. And what we really need to consider is how are children of poverty and many of children of color, how are they taught in or experience early childhood education as compared to their more privileged peers? For children, Sykes says the legacy of slavery can be seen in how children of poverty are controlled and disciplined, or in the way that rewards and punishments are doled out in an unequal fashion. There is a difference between the kinds of experiences that middle and upper middle class children have in early childhood programs compared to children from low income. For example, much of what happens in low income communities or under-resourced communities Much of it is about command and control, that the interactions between the adults and the children are often issues of compliance. We know that for children to have healthy development, they need to have dynamic, robust uh, learning experiences. And you do not uh, attain that if you're sitting still, your behavior being managed and controlled. I think one of the most startling examples of this disparity, this injustice, are the number of children, boys in particular, who are suspended or expelled from pre-K programs nationwide, and primarily boys of color. And usually these issues are issues of compliance, issues of control, issues of a bias toward children uh, who are from under-resourced communities. So, I mean, that's why I have to approach it from the issue of a system. The curriculum is just one part of the system, but it's a larger conceptual framework, which, again, has its roots in slavery, in oppression, in repression of people uh, of color in particular. And so we try to tell the story that, If you are perceived as less than, even in our modern-day childcare, the disregard for that work is prevalent and it finds its historical roots in slavery. When looking at the system from the childcare worker's perspective, Sykes sees an intersectional axis of injustice that also reaches far back into our history. For starters, it's an almost all-female workforce. 92% compared to male workers in the system. 
disproportionately in the early care and education field, women certainly dominate the field, but women of color are disproportionately represented in the lower paying jobs in the field, and they make 85 cents less than white women. So that's a a racial justice issue. In terms of gender justice, if this was a male-dominated field, we would not have the suppressed wages. If people get to $15 an hour, they're doing well in this field. And that is what a parking lot attendant receives or a manicure so that the wages are suppressed because it's a female-dominated profession. And then third, you cannot have economic parity when you have suppressed wages. And so the attitude, in spite of the fact that over 60% of women work outside the home, the prevailing attitude is such that a woman's place is in the home with their children. And so that is what drives the um, suppression of wages and status of people who work in the field. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, as of May 2020, the median pay for a child care worker is about $25,000 per year, or $12 per hour. They typically work in child care centers, their own homes, or private households. Part-time work or irregular hours are common. Even more striking, those caring for infants, toddlers, and preschoolers are among the lowest paid. Many people across the board who work in childcare are also dependent on public support services like food stamps and childcare subsidy themselves. So they're not even making a living wage. It's become a part of the permanent servant class in this country. Everyone in the care industries, child care is one, but there's health care. There are all these um, different professions where we are caring for elders. We care, you know, in nursing homes. And part of what I've been thinking about and what we're writing about in the book is the need to have sort of this unification of low-wage, low-status workers. In other words, instead of just working in isolation, this issue of suppressed wages is not just a childcare issue. It is a part of the servant class. And so we're calling for people to work across organizational lines and ideologies and pushing forward the importance of equal pay for equal work. Sykes believes the low pay is one of the reasons so few men work in early childhood education. It is representative of the low regard that society has for women, that child care is women's work, and they shouldn't be paid well for it. You know, we've had in our history three times before when child care was elevated during World War II under the Lanham Act, when we the government supported nationwide child care, and women were pressed into service as they were in the industry, but child care was provided across the country for a minimal uh, charge, and the teachers at that time were compensated relatively well. However, when the war was over and the men came back, the women were sent back home and child care was dismantled. 
President Richard Nixon had expressed his understanding of the importance of early childhood development after being elected. What happens to the child from a nutritional standpoint, uh, from an educational standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, uh, in the years between one and five may affect that child for the balance of his life, regardless of what may happen after that time. And then we had the Comprehensive Child Development Bill that um, was a bipartisan bill that would have provided universal child care. And the president, who was Nixon at the time, vetoed that bill. So, and now we're at Build Back Better. Today, with my Democratic colleagues, we have a framework for my Build Back Better initiative. And here's how it will fundamentally change the lives of millions of people for the better. There is a lot of excitement in the country because there's money in there, a lot of money for child care and a lot of money for universal pre-K across the country. Last November, the House passed the Build Back Better bill. It included $400 billion for child care and preschool programs. As of February 2022, facing stiff Republican resistance and lacking the full support of the Democratic majority, the bill is stalled in the Senate. There's a real question about this country's commitment to children and to families. Remember, the United States is one of two countries that has not signed on to the UN Rights of Children Bill, which is very interesting and curious. Opponents of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Children in the early 1990s would say they feared government overreach, the same type of objection that Nixon cited when he vetoed the Comprehensive Child Development Bill in 1971. With child care policy proving to be a political lightning rod, it makes sense that many workers in the industry wouldn't engage with the obvious injustices built into the system. Sykes says his book seeks to change that by employing the pedagogical ideas of Brazilian philosopher and educator Paulo Freire. One of the things that we're trying to do in this book is to talk about raising our consciousness. Oftentimes, people who are oppressed do not realize that they're oppressed. And oftentimes, they internalize the view of themselves that the oppressor has inflicted on them. And so in this book, we are really saying to women across the board and women of color to wake up that there are mobilization efforts that could be enacted that would bring more attention to the plight of the low-status, low-salary child care worker. Society sort of exploits what they consider to be the docile manner of women, and they mistreat them until you raise your awareness of what is the systemic activity that is causing you to be in a low-wage, low-status job. And that is what this critical consciousness, to acknowledge that you are oppressed, and you are oppressed by a society that has very little regard for children, has very little regard for women and women as workers. Sykes says that the U.S. can't claim to have a child care system, and the workforce that keeps it going is beginning to buckle under the current levels of stress. National Association for the Education of Young Children did a study. People are ready to bail out. I mean, these are large numbers. We may not have a system to repair if we keep on going the way we are. And so 
to me, this is an opportunity to rethink, reimagine, and reconstruct the system. And my part, I will let the policy wonks do what they do. My part is to alert the workforce that we don't have to sit and be passive, that we have voice, that we have agency, and that we can act on our own behalf. So that's one one piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole thing, but it's one piece, and it's a piece that has been historically ignored. Moments of sweeping cultural change don't come around that often, yet their effects can often be felt for decades. Just as we're dealing with the legacy of slavery more than 150 years after it was abolished, the progressive era of the late 1800s still shapes many aspects of our lives today, including how we care for our children. And no one person of that era likely had a bigger impact than Jane Addams. We'll look at the pros and cons of her contributions after a quick break. Sponsorship for the 1800 Days podcast brought to you by the Lefkowski Family Foundation, a private charitable foundation established in 2006 by Liz and Eric Lefkowski. Its purpose is to advance high-impact initiatives that enhance the quality of human life in the communities we serve. Adams was part of a generation that I think if we compare it, that college generation of the 1880s, to the college generation of the 1960s, we may get a little sense of, uh, of the kind of the urgency that people felt and some of the ways in which the old and the new didn't see eye to eye and also the charm and excitement, maybe even the romanticism of trying some new experiment. This is Rima Lunin Schultz, a Jane Addams scholar and former staff historian at the Hull House Museum in Chicago. Adams is best known for founding Hull House, what we would call today an early community center. Schultz says many of the causes Adams was involved in were interconnected. The anti-sweatshop movement that had been inspired by some investigative reporting about the kind of child labor that was occurring in the burgeoning garment district that was on the near west side of Chicago. While there were some factories where women were working more and more, there were home finishing situations where people were being given pieces of work to do, called piecework, of course, in tenements that were unsupervised, insanitary, filled with all kinds of living condition problems. And on top of that, they were paid mere pennies for their work. It was a very exploitive system. And 
when it was revealed how many young children were caught in the web of this sweatshop work, an alliance emerged called the Illinois Women's Alliance, which was the coalition of a wide range of women's organizations. So they had a real interest in making sure that children went to school. Compulsory education was one thing they asked for, and in order for that to happen, they had to have anti-sweatshop laws. And they also asked for an eight-hour day for women. It was very ambitious to ask for an eight-hour day for all workers. Workers at that time, it's the 1880s, were working 11, 12-hour days were the norm, including Saturday. The fight, for example, for the Saturday half day was a major monumental labor campaign that finally came to be. This is just one example that illustrates how far we had to go as a society in thinking about the welfare of children. In her research, Schultz came across something that showed her how Adams was thinking about supporting mothers and children on multiple levels. Well, I found a wonderful picture of a early playground in Chicago with one of these little covered areas. The earliest playgrounds were rather rude in comparison to what we have today. I mean, no one knew what belonged in a playground, what it should look like. We had to imagine it. Okay, so these mothers with hats on and dressed, you know, because they were outdoors in public, holding their infants and presumably watching their toddlers play in the playground, looked so stiff and sort of like strangers in a strange land, so to speak. And my thought was that one of the great things about Jane Addams was that she understood the multiplicity of educative experiences that had to go into the education process. It was not only the classroom. She had to educate the neighborhood women to understand and accept that their children playing in a playground was a positive thing and how it should be done and what the children should wear and so forth. Hull House became a hub of this kind of education, hosting volunteers who ran programs available to the community, ones that were based on the latest social science research happening in Europe. One powerful European idea was the concept of kindergarten, based on the work of Friedrich Froebel. In nearby St. Louis, Susan Blow had opened the first public kindergarten in the U.S. in 1873. In Chicago, Alice Putnam was working along similar lines to spread the idea of kindergarten. Her kindergarten teacher training program was the first thing hosted by Hull House. Did public schools 
add this on and incorporate these ideas right away? No. It practically took as long as it took for women to get the vote for public schools to truly incorporate these ideas about education. So in essence, the crusade for the kindergarten was a social movement. And I put it in the movement that includes the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the suffrage movement, uh, the kinds of things that Jane Addams would meld together in what became the serious political agenda of the political party called the Progressive Party by 1912. Schultz points out the music school at Hull House as a prime example of the innovative approach to education that Adams pioneered. It was run by a woman named Eleanor Smith. Schultz and a few colleagues wrote a book on it. The music school did something absolutely shocking. It was one of the first in the United States and then became a leader in all the settlement schools, music schools that followed. They taught immigrant children how to read and write music, classical stuff. In fact, interest in writing this book was triggered by listening to the music that Eleanor Smith wrote. These were called Hull House Songs. Why do I pick the threads all day? Mother, mother, while sunshine children laugh and play, and must I work forever? And these were songs about suffrage and anti-sweatshop labor, children working in the coal mines. So they were protest songs, but these are not like any protest songs we ever heard. They were not looking to kind of find the talented few in the neighborhood. They believed, like Froebel, that everybody should have music, a music background. And one of the things that Eleanor Smith did was to write the music textbooks that were adopted by the Chicago Public Schools and many other public schools and were used for years. So you see, what is this settlement house hub? It is a model. It is doing something and saying, look, see what we do, see how it works, and adopt it, and let the municipality adopt it. Let public money pay for it so that it can be expanded. I would say that so much of what ends up being Head Start is presaged by the kind of stuff that, that Adams was trying to do. Whole House wasn't perfect. For example, that music program taught a young Benny Goodman to read music, but he had to teach himself jazz on the streets. Schultz says that's one of the limits of this Eurocentric model of education. This is really 
getting to the Achilles heel of the progressives, who so far I've portrayed as being pretty good people. And they are pretty good people, but their worldview, including the settlement house, was to share a kind of Protestant Western culture. That's what they knew. That's what they thought was universal. And in doing that, they unfortunately, and without, I think, intending to, made whiteness part of being American. And in that way, they really set up kind of boundaries which made Jim Crow live a much longer and much more vicious existence in our culture. Adams, in the second 20 years at Hull House, she apologizes and she says, we didn't have the fervor of the abolitionist and we didn't see what we were doing. We didn't pay enough attention to this. So that she writes in 1929, just before the financial crash and the Great Depression. But she is already acknowledging that in her own neighborhood of the near west side, where there is a constant shift of demography and tensions and conflicts, and when the unspeakable has happened in the 1919 race riot and in the terrible uh, violence against black families who are trying to find better conditions for living, better housing. They are met with terrible violence in the 20s and the 30s and 40s. Uh, she dies in 1935, but she already sees this. Noting the limitations of a Eurocentric worldview is more than we would expect of a white woman in 1929 and can redeem Adams' legacy from some of the shortcomings of her model. Schultz acknowledges there were plenty of problems with how settlement houses functioned, but thinks they were more good than bad. Is this imperfect way better than nothing? Absolutely. It's more than better than nothing. In many ways, it opened up for people enormous vistas. There is a whole collection of oral interviews that were done of people who came to their maturation in the 1920s and 30s. There was one man who unfortunately died young, but he was interviewed, and he was a kind of a rough guy. And he had a very close relationship with Jane Addams, partly because he was kind of a juvenile delinquent and she had to try to rein him in. But anyway, he said about Hull House, he said, it taught me that there was another way of living. It opened my eyes. And that's education. From the work of Jane Addams in the Hull House, Schultz says we can draw a line to the ideas behind Head Start. In our next episode, we'll dive into how that landmark program came into being with Erickson Institute co-founder, Barbara Bowman. There was an increase in the number of programs and concern and interest in young children, beginning with Head Start and going through the 1990s as we spent more and more resources on research and on actual programs. That interest has receded. 
1800 Days is presented by Erickson Institute and produced by PRX Productions. Executive producers for Erickson Institute are Mariana Soto-Manning and Mara Daly. Associate producers are Sheila Hineke and Tia Hawkins. Andrew Gill is the series producer and Minju Park is the associate producer. The mix engineer is Merritt Jacob with field recording by Lou Carlozo. The project manager is Morgan Church and executive producer for PRX Productions is Jocelyn Gonzalez. I'm your host, Natalie Moore. For more on Erickson Institute in 1800 Days, visit us at erickson.edu slash podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe to 1800 Days wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This podcast was created by Erickson Institute, and it was produced by PRX. Erickson Institute recognizes the following 1800-day sponsors whose investments ensure that our youngest children, their families, and communities reach their fullest potential. Dan and Patty Walsh, GCM Grosvenor, Harris Family Foundation, Liz and Eric Lefkowski, The Malkin Family, James Tyree Foundation, Judy and Ray McCaskey, Carrie and Michael J. Sachs, Will and Sandy Sterling, Anne E. Leibowitz Fund, and Joy Siegel, Bloom Family Charitable Foundation, Virginia and Norman Bobbins, Joseph and Bessie Feinberg Foundation, Heising Simons Foundation, Sean and Louis Ingle, Laser Family Foundation, Nizer Family Foundation, James and Sarah Starr, Susan and Robert Wislow, Sherry and Sherwin Zuckerman.